Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Berasli. It was the summer of 1944. World War II was raging, and the global economy was in tatters. A peaceful and prosperous future characterized by global cooperation probably seemed like wishful thinking. And yet, at a secluded hotel in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from around the world laid the groundwork for just that. At Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from 44 allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. The Bretton Woods Conference gave rise to the International Monetary Fund and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which would later become the World Bank. These meetings are designed to promote trade in the post-war world and to create a foundation for lasting peace. It also established a fixed exchange rate system. All national currencies were valued in relation to the U.S. dollar, which was convertible to gold at a fixed rate. When you think of a global currency, what is it that comes to your mind? Is it the U.S. dollar? Because it accounts for almost 90% of the forex, about 62% of foreign reserves. It is called the petrodollar. But while Bretton Woods institutions went on to become pillars of the international order, the Bretton Woods exchange rate system lasted only till 1971. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. Fifty years have passed since the so-called Nixon shock, and the dollar is still the world's leading reserve currency. But its position faces challenges from new instruments like digital currencies and from new geopolitical arrangements. Concerns are growing that the Fed is endangering the dollar status as a global reserve currency. Billionaire investor Ray Dalio has warned that the conflict between the U.S. and China could develop into a capital war, which would damage the dollar. Is there a real threat right now to the U.S. dollar's status as the world's reserve currency? Yes, there is a threat. It's an evolutionary type of process. Can the world come together to manage whatever monetary changes lie ahead? Hello. Hi, Paola. Uh, hello, everyone. Hi, Harold. It's so nice to meet you virtually. Hello, Amira. Here to help us answer this question are Paola Subaki and Harold James. Paola is a professor of international economics at the University of London. Harold is a professor of history and international affairs at Princeton University. They join us from Europe. So I want to start by clarifying the outcomes of the Bretton Woods Conference. The Bretton Woods institutions are often credited with helping to rebuild the European and Japanese economies after World War II. Paula, how did they contribute here? Well, um, the objective at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 was to build uh, the international monetary system for the new uh, world economy. So the economy and the new economic order that would have happened after the war. Um, and the international monetary system was rebuilt around these institutions, the IMF and the World Bank. And so the objectives of this system was basically to create um, a robust framework for uh, growth in, uh, in the economy and to ensure full employment. And so that meant uh, using uh, policy tools in the countries that were a member of the system to manage demand and, and support growth and full employment. 
And there was another objective, was the balance of payments adjustment. That was very much in response of the issues and the problems that happened during the interwar, uh, the, the two wars, First World War and Second World War period. And, and that was very much this adjustment was managed by the International Monetary Fund. And the, the other objective was the economic development. And that was very much um, a, a tool for official lending, and that led to the institution of the World Bank. So uh, these two institutions are basically core and very much essential and existential to the Bretton Woods system. Of course, Bretton Woods didn't only create institutions. It also established a fixed exchange rate system based on the U.S. dollar's convertibility to gold. In that sense, it was sort of an extension of the gold standard, which had collapsed during the interwar period. Harold, how did the Bretton Woods system improve upon the gold standard? The gold standard had really just two alternatives. You stayed on a particular parity, or if you were buffeted by the winds of the international economy, you were pushed off it. And the uh, Bretton Woods system uh, was designed by John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White uh, to be more flexible than that. Uh, so it was a system of fixed but adjustable exchange rates. Um, but that actually constitutes a little bit of a problem because uh, there's a great deal of pressure on deficit countries uh, to do something. So deficit countries, uh, you can tell by my accent, I'm originally from the UK, and the UK was in a terrible state through most of the 1960s with constant rumors of devaluation. When you're in that situation, you don't have very much choice. And in the end, you're pushed to devalue. But on the other hand, um, the countries that were running surpluses didn't have an equivalent pressure. And it becomes increasingly clear, clear during the 1960s uh, that there are big, big surpluses in uh, in particular two countries, uh, West Germany, the Federal Republic of Germany, and Japan. And uh, there was very little uh, that could be done about that. Uh, there's a great deal of international uh, jawboning on that, uh, pressure to revalue, but there's no formal mechanism. So in the end, uh, the answer to your question is that the Bretton Woods system resembled the gold standard more than it should have done. This link to the gold standard created another problem as well. Bretton Woods cemented the US dollar's position as the world's dominant currency. This was supposed to form the basis of a stable global financial system. And for a while it did. For 26 years, the world was practically free of banking crises. The conference was a world-changing event. They managed to end decades of destruction and chaos and put the world on a new course aimed at international cooperation, global stability, peace and prosperity, ultimately. But the system was fundamentally flawed. The dollar was needed as liquidity within the U.S. economy. At the same time, it was needed as an asset held by foreign countries. And all of that needed to be backed by gold reserves. This became a serious problem in the early 1960s. This is a CBS News special report. Vietnam, 
U.S. President Lyndon Johnson's administration deepened America's involvement in the Vietnam War, causing costs to soar. The American commitment to defend South Vietnam it started small, but kept on growing from a few billion dollars of military aid to a few hundred advisors to more than half a million American troops. Four presidents have accepted and extended our commitment. To leave Vietnam to its fate would shake the confidence of all these people in the value of an American commitment. The Johnson administration also increased social spending as part of the Great Society initiative. The Great Society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we're totally committed in our time. With America's spending rising fast, the Bretton Woods system's weaknesses could no longer be ignored. Well, the system was run again on a, a sort of peg to gold because it was obviously it was the dollar peg to the value of gold as it was the size of Bretton Woods and all the other currencies were uh, pegged to the dollar. So, so that was the mechanism implied. Um, at a certain point, the United States uh, ran um, into a deficit of its uh, current account due to a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is the uh, domestic spending. The other one is the Vietnam War and the objectives of uh, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy. At the same time, capital flows became more relevant uh, in the system. So and in particularly in the, in the early 1960s, there was the development of the offshore dollar market, which created liquidity in dollars and uh, flows of uh, capitals. At a certain point, people started to wonder whether the deficit in the current account of the United States would have pushed the United States to adjust the value of the dollar, because by then it was the value that was set at the agreed was not often reflecting the fundamental, the economic fundamental. So the way to adjust the system would have been uh, required for countries with a surplus in the current account, in particularly Germany, to adjust their exchange rate. And so to some extent, uh, cooperate and rebalance the system. And that was not possible for a number of reasons, including political reasons. There's a kind of systemic problem in the system because Every currency is defined in its relationship to the U.S. dollar. Um, but that means that the U.S. dollar is actually, in a way, a prisoner. It can't change its parity against itself. Um, now, it's true that it could have changed the gold price. And there was some discussion, actually a long time before the crisis of the Bretton Woods system in the late 1950s, about uh, devaluing the dollar against gold. Uh, but that actually wouldn't have done anything to those imbalances uh, that uh, Paolo was talking about, because the exchange rates then would have been the same vis-a-vis -vis the dollar for the yen or the Deutschmark. It's an odd thing because the dollar is the central currency, uh, but that means also that the dollar is trapped by the Bretton Woods system. And there's nothing really that the United States can do except something pretty explosive, which is exactly what Richard Nixon did on that memorable 15th of August when he did the television address to the American people. So picking up on um, the 15th of August in 1971, 
President Nixon closes the gold window. But Harold, you said that in doing so, he embraced economic nationalism. What was behind Nixon's decision, and why was his approach so problematic? Well, it 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 was really acting like an elephant in a china shop. Uh, you know, if you take this uh, story that uh, I, I think is correct, that the U.S. is basically trapped by that, um, then it requires very radical action. But it's action that upsets everybody, and uh, it was very contentious. The very influential and uh, very reputable chair of the Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governors at the time, um, Arthur Burns, who was bitterly opposed uh, to this move. And he said again and again uh, that it's going to be a catastrophe. Foreigners will retaliate. Um, uh, there, there will be trade protection if the dollar is uh, devalued. Um, then other countries will put up protective tariffs against the dollar, and you would be back in the world of the 1930s. I mean, in some ways, uh, there were trade conflicts in the 1970s, and there were very, very bitter international tensions in the the 1970s. And uh, Nixon, Nixon, you know, he, he promised in August 1971, when he talked to the American people, he talked about three things. He talked about creating more and better jobs. He talked about stopping the rise in the cost of living because there was a little bit of inflation in the late 1960s. And he talked about protecting the dollar from the attacks of international financial speculators. But all three of those actually became much worse as a result of the American action. And so in that sense, uh, this was a move uh, that really blew up uh, and it blew up the system, uh, and it deeply destabilized the United States. Now, the United States was already in a bad situation. Uh, there's the war in Vietnam that it can't really extricate itself from. There's the unrest of the late 1960s, uh, the racial uh, riots, uh, the student protests. So the, the, the United States is a society uh, that's on the brink Uh, But what Nixon did, it didn't do anything to improve the situation. And in that sense, uh, it's it's a bold gamble. Uh, But it's a gamble, in my view, uh, that had great costs. And really, the system was only put together again in the late 1970s, uh, when a new chair of the Federal Reserve comes in, Paul Volcker. Um, And uh, what he did in 1979 uh, was heroic, but it stabilized the United States. And in the end, it created a new kind of economy that was based, I think sometimes people call it the Volcker economy, the Volcker standard, rather than the kind of quasi-gold standard that there was with the $35 an ounce system of Bretton Woods. But between 1971 and 1978, the result was terrible for the United States. The Nixon shock effectively blew up the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates. It led to a revamp of the monetary system. But the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, lived on. It wasn't smooth sailing, however. Of the two Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, the latter was the one that felt the impact of the U.S. decision of breaking the uh, Bretton Woods system. Because it was an institution that, for a number of years, lost its purpose because 
the whole function and, and objectives of the IMF was to provide this balance of, of payment adjustment to uh, help provide the liquidity to countries that needed to change the uh, exchange rate, rearrange exchange rate, to provide this liquidity to go through this process of adjustment. So at that point, you know, the, United, the IMF was a bit left in, in a limbo. And to some extent, it became, uh, um, again, uh, the lender of last resort to, in a very broad way. It was actually in later years where these uh, two institutions started to change and become more engaged in global affairs. And I would say in particularly after the global financial crisis and even more so after uh, the uh, breakout of the epidemics, the COVID epidemics last year. In Harold's view, that initial disruption didn't last quite so long. In fact, he thinks the IMF hit its stride after the collapse of the fixed exchange rate regime. Yes, it's a very odd phenomenon um, that the IMF in particular loses its raison d'etre in 1971. But actually, it becomes more central and more powerful very quickly. In the 1960s, it had actually been rather impotent because it's very hard to tell countries to change their exchange rates. The Japanese don't listen at all. Uh, the Germans only listen very intermittently. Uh, the French and the British don't want to hear that their, their countries uh, are running an overvalued currency. But in the 1970s, the IMF made itself, uh, remade itself as a manager of emergency support uh, to countries that had been badly affected by the oil price hike. Uh, so it introduced new facilities, the oil facilities. In the 1980s, I think more centrally, it remade itself as a debt manager and it became what it really has been since then, uh, managing debt in, 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 in problem moments. Um, uh, that role came back again in a big way in 1998. Uh, in 1997, 1998, in the East Asian crisis, it came back again uh, with regard to the European debt crisis after 2010. So the, the IMF uh, is completely different to the institution that uh, Keynes and White envisaged in 1944. Uh, but intermittently, when there are debt crises, it's more powerful than the International Monetary Fund uh, ever had been in the classic Bretton Woods system. As Paula and Harold note, the Bretton Woods institutions played a significant role in responses to global crises, such as the crisis of 2008. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. The economic crisis we face is unlike any we've seen in our lifetime. It's a crisis of falling confidence and rising debt widely distributed risk and narrowly concentrated reward. But in today's changing global economy, the Bretton Woods institutions may not be fit for purpose. Obviously, these are the institutions that came out of Bretton Woods where the United States is the main shareholders with the veto right. And obviously we live in a different world these days. It's no longer the 1944 world. And we have other countries that actually should be included, and in particular the big developed, big emerging market economies, then should be included in this governance in a more uh, balanced way. 
I, I mean, the issue I think today is uh, in one way, you know, is China or other big emerging markets, are they going to work with the system or build up their alternative system? And uh, many people see the One Belt, One Road initiative as a way of designing uh, a quite separate uh, view of globalization. So it wasn't just the IMF and the World Bank that survived the Nixon shock. The U.S. dollar's primacy did too. But Harold, you've pointed out that doubts about the dollar have also been growing for a while now. When did these doubts emerge and what events fueled them? So in the 1970s, the dollar really does look as if it's losing its position. And uh, that's actually one of the drivers of the process of European integration in 1978 and 1979, there's an acute phase of dollar weakness. Uh, that's when the dollar looks at its wobbliest. Um, and that's also the moment when the Europeans launched the European monetary system, which is a kind of precursor uh, of, the, of the monetary union. You know, after 1979, that looks less impressive, in part because the US dollar really comes back, and that's the, the, the Volcker effect, in part because also private international capital movements are taking off. And so the dollar, instead of being a managed state currency, uh, is now a currency that's really managed by big, big financial houses, uh, big banks. Um, and it's private dollars that are really, really blossoming um, in the 1970s and 1980s. So uh, the world is, in fact, more of a dollar-based system in the 1980s and 90s than it was in the 1970s. Uh, the dollar is much more central. Uh, the dollar really survives. But, uh, you know, I think uh, we're in some ways at a moment when we're looking now at a turning point in this uh, development because the same kind of pressures that were there in the early 1970s are coming back, uh, more American inflation, political pressure in the U.S. to do both big fiscal action uh, and keep monetary conditions easy. Now we have a different sort of world in which uh, other countries um, have currencies that are credible and stable. The Europeans do, the Chinese do, um, and there are also private providers of currencies. So uh, the, the options really look more now than they were in the 1970s, and now I think the search for a replacement of the dollar is really on. As Harold points out, there's been a boom in potential replacements for the dollar lately, especially with the rise of digital currencies. Over the past year, more and more countries have been gearing up to develop their national digital currencies. Now, China seems to be in the lead as it's speeding up its digital yuan development. Our residents in Beijing are now able to try out the new digital yuan in nearly 2,000 stores in the capital. This is the first major economy to create its own digital currency. And we can't discuss digital currencies without mentioning Bitcoin, of course. It's seen a resurgence of late, smashing through the $40,000 barrier for the first time last month, lifting the total value of the entire cryptocurrency market above $1 trillion. Harold has likened this to a new Nixon shock. It might be destabilizing at first, but in the long run, the world may be better off. So, 
you know, I, I think if you think about it, um, there are really just a relatively few number of currency regimes in history. Uh, there were currencies uh, backed by precious metal uh, for thousands of years. And the Bretton Woods system has elements of that precious metal-backed currency built into it in the equivalence of the dollar at $35 an ounce. Uh, but that was something that the United States could change. It did change it unilaterally. Uh, there's nothing illegal about what Richard Nixon did in 1971. But what happened then uh, was that you got a pure fiat currency. And it took a time um, for monetary authorities, central banks, to really learn how to deal with that. The 1970s and 80s were quite unstable in part because of very different inflation experiences. In the 1980s, there's the beginning of a convergence process that goes on for two decades. And by the 2000s, uh, the world is moving to a low inflation regime. And I, I think we will get the same kind of divergence that we will have countries that inflate at different rates. And uh, that's going to generate uh, volatility, but it may also generate really productive thinking and it may generate a new wave of globalization. I'm actually quite optimistic about what, what may happen in the longer run um, as the result of a, a changeover, but the short run is, is, is bound to be turbulent. But Paula isn't convinced that the dollar is about to be dethroned. One of the reasons behind Bretton Woods and the need to set up an international monetary system that could work and without creating imbalances was exactly to promote international trade and integration through trade so the dollar is the most liquid and the most usable currency uh, in the world. It was true then, it is true now. So everywhere you go, you can use dollars. So that is the thing. And with the um, globalization, um, the value and the use of the dollar has increased. And so the dollarization has become even more prominent than it used to be uh, in, uh, in the 1970s. And so we need to be careful not to confuse the volatility of the exchange rate, which for the dollars, however, as for the uh, only advanced currency, is pretty uh, under control uh, with the liquidity then that currency provides. So at the moment, I do not see yet a currency that has the features, then present the features of the dollar, including the fact of being a safe haven at the time of crisis. So you can see the fluctuation between gold, people investing in gold and moving away from the dollars. But these are actually marginal movements on the on the whole. Um, the digital currency is an open question. I'm skeptical on some of those, uh, the, the digital currency which are private. I think at best they are assets, if you think they are assets, and they are risky assets for some categories of uh, investors, but they don't present the features of currency issues by central banks of, uh, you know, sovereign states. So I'm not sure we are in this transition because the technology is very interesting. But my question is, are digital currency, central bank digital currency, fundamentally different for, from the physical currency issued by central banks? Um, and if so, then possibly we see a new um, development in the system of payments. But I don't see a fundamental change in the international monetary system as we know it. 
Harold, Paolo's mentioned some of the dollar's enduring advantages. These could certainly help it stand up to other currencies. But are there other factors that could make the world turn away from the dollar? Uh, one of the things that is driving this move away from the dollar is the way in which the United States has used, I mean, in, in my opinion, actually, mostly correctly, uh, the dollar as an instrument of foreign policy. Um, when it's a question of isolating North Korea, it works pretty well. Uh, North Korea is a pretty small country and is not very well integrated in the uh, international economy. When it's a question of dealing with Iran, it's more complicated. When it's a question of imposing sanctions and uh, putting measures against banks that do transactions with Russia uh, or with individuals in Russia, um, you then really open up something. And uh, the, the tensions, increasing tensions uh, with China, that's really what's driving this. That's driving a search uh, for alternatives. And it's why uh, China is, is, is really so actively thinking, it has been thinking uh, for a long time about alternatives to, uh, to, to the uh, dollar world. And so uh, th th there's a state reason uh, for thinking about alternatives, but there are also private sector providers. And, you know, one other uh, feature of this is that, um, uh, yes, in countries that are on the whole very well managed, um, central bank digital currencies will be successful. They will be successful in Sweden. Uh, they will be successful in the UK. Uh, but central bank digital currencies in many former Soviet republics in Central Asia are not going to catch on. Um, and that's where the private market is going to be more important. And uh, so th th there's really a proliferation of, uh, of private providers. And, you know, that as a historian is familiar to me because that's what the world looked like in, for instance, in the late medieval period, that there were lots of Italian city-states that provided their Absolutely. own coinage system. Uh, there were lots of banks that had their own uh, bills of exchange and uh, they were equivalent. Uh, they were pegged uh, to uh, florins or... Uh, ducats or uh, British pounds. There's a whole multiplicity of things. And, you know, it seems to me that there's actually an element of back to the past about this, that we're reviving some of that multiplicity uh, that really did exist in uh, late medieval and early modern Europe. Absolutely. But even then, there were some key currencies that were much more acceptable than, than, than others. And then there was the gold content that was what made the big difference. But I agree with you, Harold. There is a long-term transition here, and I entirely agree, and China is trying to catch up. Um, we might have, and we might move into uh, a, a multi-currency uh, monetary system that China has been advocating for some time. We might uh, move into a system with digital currencies that are issued by central banks as well as the private sector. But I don't think it's happening now or in the short term. It will take a while to go through this adjustment. And possibly, as you said, Harold, the transition will be very messy. Picking up on this idea of a messy transition, I want to end by looking at what role institutions might play in managing this process. Can the Bretton Woods institutions be reformed in a way that could help stabilize the new system? Or does the world need a new institutional framework, maybe with a bigger role for regional bodies? 
Well, Mika, this is a hundred million dollars, and I say dollars, <laughs> a question. There isn't a clear answer. Um, it could be, yes, we have already this institutional framework. Why don't we continue to use it? Uh, and But we need to go through a thorough reform of this system. Um, unfortunately, the thorough reform of this system has to go through the United States and to uh, Congress and uh, and this has proved very frustrating at the very least. China is building some institutions that are regional, that are multilateral. I'm thinking about the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, but also the New Development Bank. So it is all very messy. The key point here is that China has the resources to build a, another system, another institutional system. And to some extent, some of the building blocks are already there. Is there a way to reconcile what we have already and what has been built uh, in recent years? Uh, ideally, I would say yes. I would love to say yes. Right now, these days, I'm not entirely sure whether this would be possible because it looks like we are moving on two separate um, tracks. There might be parallel tracks, but there might not be, you know, there might not be a way to converge. I think it's also worth thinking about the fundamental question of this transition in monetary arrangements, because the transition that we've been talking about was the transition from precious metal currencies to fiat currencies that are backed uh, by the capacity of states to have fiscal capacity and to raise taxes. There is, I think, an alternative, and that's where the private currencies are really interesting, um, is that they can be backed by something which is quite real, uh, but is in a way insubstantial. They're, they're going to be backed by data. Um, so big, big operators, uh, Google or Amazon or Beidou or uh, Tencent, they have an enormous amount of data. That, that's valuable. Um, and that represents a kind of security that is different to either precious metals or to states raising money. Uh, by taxation. Uh, but when we think of that like that, I think you can begin to see good implications and also frightening implications that uh, when these large amounts of data are held by private institutions, private corporations, uh, the, the, the tech giants, people are going to be worried about their privacy. Um, people are going to be worried about whether they're being manipulated uh, by the data providers. Um, and so it does seem to me uh, that if you, if you really take that seriously, uh, international institutions have a really important role, uh, which is to manage data um, and make sure that data is publicly available where it's a public good. Um, so, you know, we need something that is going to, is going to be very quick, but also to protect uh, people. Um, and I, I see a much greater role for these international institutions in, in managing information flows and in providing information flows and guaranteeing uh, that this is not just left to the tech giants. So, you know, this, this to me is the third uh, kind of monetary transition uh, from precious metals to governments and fiscal capacity to information. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Elmira. 
That was Paula Subaki, a professor at the University of London, and Harold James, a professor at Princeton University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for @prosyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.